0: and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. i to mention also if the children would like to come uh, and get these uh, bags down here, they're welcome to come at this time. Uh, we are going through a sermon series on the life of David. And um, from this point on, there's a few more weeks left, uh, it gets pretty dark. Uh, We see here really the downfall. We we saw already back in uh, 2 Samuel 1, uh, he started to move towards the dark side. But really from this point on, he just gives in completely. And what you see from here on are the the terrible consequences of, of this particular decision. And uh, the, the atrocities described in this story are, are really disturbing, and um, they, would, they would make me almost question the Bible's goodness. I've heard people say that, like, how could this be okay with God? How could God uh, put this in the Bible, this story? Um, sometimes Christians try to make it sound better than it is. It's not good at all. There's, there's, it's, a, it's a really disgusting display of immorality on the part of the king of Israel, um, but I think that the, the very realism of the passage, which is so disturbing, is what makes the Bible so trustworthy and so healthy, uh, able to bring such light into our lives, because uh, it is so unlike human beings to write down this kind of thing. And that's what I want you to be thinking about uh, throughout this sermon is just how different this is from other books. And other ways of seeing the world, especially sacred books. Um, If you've read uh, George Orwell's 1984, uh, you see exactly the opposite of this. You have this uh, thing called the Ministry of Truth, and the Ministry of Truth edits all the newspaper articles and all the history books and all the information that gets out there to the people, and they make uh, Oceana, which is the name of the country, they make Big Brother, who's the leader of the country, uh, look impeccable. Not a single mistake. And they just change things if there are anything, anything's wrong that Big Brother has done. And so they delete all these uncomfortable episodes. They actually go back and they change things in newspapers and destroy old artifacts. And there's just 100% control of all information. And uh, George Orwell is the one who said that history is written by the victors. And what he meant by that is the the winners of history are the ones that write the history to make themselves look good. and a lot of Christian biographies are actually that way. It's interesting to compare a Christian biography to what the scriptures have as their biographies of their heroes. And uh, I was reading one on C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, who I love, a preacher from London in the 19th century, and it was, it was just so um, complimentary of him in every way that I had to stop reading it. It kind of it got me sick a little bit. Just, uh, the word is hagiography, uh, which just made him look absolutely perfect. And although I love the man, I couldn't keep reading him. And uh, this story is not like that. This story is more like uh, a a film by Martin Scorsese or a a book by Dostoevsky where you see uh, all these dark sides of of the human psyche. And um, I would say this story spotlights the worst thing that the greatest hero of Israel ever did. I mean, think about that. This story puts the spotlight on the worst thing that the greatest hero of Israel ever did. You know, explain that. How does such a story come into being? Um, And I think that what we see from this about God, which is the main thing you should always ask yourself when you read anything in the Bible, what does this tell me about God? Well, what this tells you about God is that God will not ever let us hide in the corner in shame. That God always draws his people into the light. And, you know, we have our hands over our face and we can't stand to have other people hear about what we've done or see ourselves. We don't want to see ourselves. And he pries our hands loose and he holds up a mirror to us and he says this is who you are. And we see in the background his face um, smiling at us and loving us and accepting us and saying it's okay. You're safe with me. You're secure. Have no fear. There is no condemnation. There is no shame here. But you've got to see who you are. You've got to, you've got to uh, as it says of Adam and Eve, they were 100% naked and 100% unashamed. And that's the only way that you can really trust that God loves you, is to have that experience. And so, basically what this passage is, I think, is what Paul calls speaking the truth in love. In Ephesians 4.15, he encourages Christians to speak the truth, but speak the truth with love. Where the point of speaking the truth is the other person's well-being. And nothing but the other person's well-being. Never out of your um, your own revenge or to make them look bad. Or to teach them a lesson, but only for their good. And so I would say in this story we see, we see God speaking the truth very strongly to David. But speaking that truth with nothing but love. And uh, those are the two parts actually I'm going to look at. First speaking the truth and then... That little parable that Nathan tells to me is, uh, is a story of so much love and grace. Uh, that It's amazing that God would, would do that for David. Especially after it says at the end of chapter 11, it displeased the Lord what David did. And the next verse says, and so he sent Nathan to David. It displeased the Lord, and yet he is so loving that he sends Nathan in this mission uh, of truth-telling that in such a way that David could hear it. So that's what I want to look at, these two things, speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. Now, now God has just promised David the eternal kingdom, the greatest promise ever made in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. uh, I'm going to make an eternal house out of your line, your descendants, your seed, and one of your descendants will, will rule forever. Greatest promise any human being has ever heard in their lives. And the next thing you see about David really is just this complacency that sits in Which says a lot about human beings, I think. It's not just David. But when we get to the top, we often kind of fall into complacency, arrogance, um, a lack of gratitude, sense of privilege. That's certainly what happens to David in verse 1. It's in, in the spring when everything's dry. The rains have ended in this part of the world. And the kings usually all go to battle and they lead their troops into battle with the king at the forefront of the army. Um, and David sends his general Joab and Israel into battle, but notice that he is just sitting back home, kind of lounging around in Jerusalem. And if you look at verse 2, you, you, he literally is lounging because it says that late one afternoon he rose from his couch. So what does that tell you? That tells you that 4 p.m. and he's, uh, he's taking a siesta. He's sleeping while his troops are out on the front line. Um, I'm not saying anything negative about naps. The Bible is certainly not saying anything negative about naps. But the point is the contrast between his sleeping and the troops fighting on his behalf. Uh, and and because of his uh, lethargy, uh, he's walking around. Which is a verb in Hebrew that implies kind of back and forth and back and forth and, and getting nowhere. So he's just walking back and forth. He's aimless, he's idle, he's bored, he's restless. If you have a child, it's like the second... Or third or fourth week into summer vacation. Maybe the fifth week into summer vacation. And at first it was really exciting and fun. But towards the middle and the second part of the summer vacation. They become uh, restless and aimless. And uh, a famous quote uh, is that the the idle mind is the devil's playground. And I would say that in this case that is definitely true. That in verse 2 the reason that this happens is because of the idleness. It says he saw from the roof of his palace a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, seeing her was not his fault. Um, You can't help what you see he saw her. Uh, But the problem is that he lingered over that sight. His eyes stayed there. So he he didn't uh, do what Job said you should do, which is to avert your eyes. Uh, to bounce your eyes off this object of beauty that you should not be looking at. Uh, Matthew 5.28, Jesus says, Do not look at a woman with lustful intent, where you just linger over her. And in this case, he clearly did linger, because he lingered so long in that look and those thoughts in his mind, that he actually took action. And that's where it becomes very dangerous. Where you, you, we, we probably all know that line where you cross from thoughts into actions. And it actually takes a lot of thoughts. And indulging those thoughts and not rejecting any of those thoughts to move from thinking and feeling into action. And there's a line there where you're, you know, your hand starts to actually move or you get up and you go somewhere, you start walking somewhere, you start driving somewhere. And that's when you're in big trouble is when you go from thinking and feeling into action. And in verse three, he sent and he inquired. And in some ways, it's already over at that point. Because he's beginning to take action on those thoughts, those desires. He's sending messengers to, to get her. And it says, uh, in verse 4, it says, he took her. It's a very strong word about snatching an object, grabbing an object. He, like, a, like a child snatches a piece of food they want. He took her. And if you, if you Google Bathsheba and click images, Uh, It's really disturbing what you see there. Because what you see, you see again and again, you see these images of a temptress, uh, someone who's seductive. And um, I have no idea where that narrative came from. But it's out there that that's what Bathsheba's like. But clearly they're ignoring whoever painted these things or drew these things or started telling these stories that he took her. That she was just bathing as one would not in any seductive way, and that he took her freedom, uh, he took her sexuality, he took her dignity away, he, he, he destroyed her in many ways, and that she was in no way complicit in this. That's very important. That she was, it says she was purifying herself, which means uh, abstinence. I mean, her husband is away fighting, and it says she's purifying herself And so in verse 4, when it says she came to him, that's kicking and screaming. That means that uh, he aggressively took her and brought her. And then it says he lay with her, which is, again, that's an aggressive move. And the way you know how disturbing this was for her is in verse 26, that she lamented. Uh, She lamented in verse 26. She wept and she wailed. And if you're cynical about Me Too, that whole movement, or... Annoyed that women are exaggerating complaints about men. Um, you need to think hard about what this is telling us about uh, the dangers of, of predatory male sexuality. I mean, that's what this is about. And so, um, again, in verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Uh, Hebrew is famous for understatement. Um, And so this is a statement uh, of enormous understatement. And I know that because in 2 Samuel 12, 9, uh, God tells David, you have despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in your sight. The sword will not depart from your house because you have despised me." So when it says it displeased the Lord, what David did, that's an understatement. Uh, There is a a rage. There is a wrath to God that is appropriate. And if he were not to feel that way, that would be inappropriate. So uh, in this letter that, that David writes to Joab when, he, when he's decided to go ahead and kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, David is kind of chuckling, and he says uh, in verse 25, Don't let this matter displease you, Joab. Don't get so caught up in all your morals and you know, your scruples. Uh, David kind of winks at the messenger. Go and and encourage Joab, it says in verse 25. Go encourage him. Tell him to lighten up. You know, boys will be boys. This is locker room stuff. David is very casual about the way he has treated Bathsheba, even after many weeks. And, uh, And yet God is not casual. And it says in 2 Samuel 12, 11, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and we're going to see that next week and the next week and the next week that God indeed raises up evil out of his, uh, David's own house where David's sons uh, and his daughters begin to destroy each other because of this sin and so even though God forgives him let's not forget there are consequences to what happens here in this passage and really that just makes the uh, eventual forgiveness more remarkable That we know this is how God feels about this. But um, one way you know how God feels about Bathsheba is the story that Nathan tells David. Where he compares her to a lamb. To a ewe lamb. Which is a little baby female lamb. And look at verse 3. The the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. uh, Which he had bought. He raised it. The little lamb grew up with his children. He shared his food with the little lamb. I mean, if you have a dog, a little tiny dog, you can picture this stuff. The lamb drank from his cup. Uh, That's that's an unnecessary detail of just affection. And he'd hold it in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And that's like a tiny window into God's affection for Bathsheba. So again, uh, when David hears about the man who killed that lamb, he is enraged. Verse 5, his anger was greatly kindled. And he, uh, he said, that man should be killed, basically. You know, he, he's done something horrible. And uh, if, if David is enraged about a lamb, I think God's point is, how much more am I about her? Because she is my ewe lamb. Bathsheba is my daughter, who I love and I care for, like that man did in the story. And so, you know, it's a, if you've ever treated a woman as an object of pleasure... Uh, with inappropriate comments or lingering gazes or certainly touching in any way is inappropriate. This tells us how God feels about these things, and it's not pretty. Um, There's even a verse in Peter that if you treat your wife roughly in a certain way, your prayers will not be heard by God because you've broken so much communion with God through her. And so uh, this is a profound expose of male sexual manipulation, which we're starting to see more and more is rampant is rampant, Uh, certainly in this country, but all over the world, always has been. And here's the amazing thing about the story. This is canonized. This makes it into the canon. This is cherished, memorized, uh, written down carefully by the scribes, preserved through the generations, read by Jesus and Paul and Peter and all throughout church history, it is a treasure of the church. The greatest failure of the greatest king of Israel is, is a treasure of the church. Because this is how the church has always valued uh, things like this. That, uh, that we do not hide or uh, shame things that are sinful. Even the worst things that are sinful. We bring them uh, out into the open. And um, we expose these things. As uh, Paul says, we need to walk in the light. Um, walk in the light as he is in the light says John. And uh, the Bible is a, is a brutal record of human sinfulness, and that's really what makes it so wonderfully countercultural. Again, that's, that's the main point I'm trying to make here. Uh, a writer that I really like, a British guy named Francis Spufford, I've mentioned him before, um, he was interviewed by the New York Times about this book he had written, and, um, and they were saying, well, what do you do with all the terrible things in church history Um, and uh, all the things that Christians have done. And he says that the genius and the power of Christianity lies in its realism. It acknowledges suffering, squalor, and cruelty, including the suffering, squalor, and cruelty caused by God's people, and demands that we give those things their full weight of sorrow and culpability. And so we've got to do that to be part of this tradition here in the story of Bathsheba and all down through the ages. I mean, David's like, somewhere along the line, tell somebody like Nathan, I want you to get that story right. I want you to talk about how I took her. I want you to talk about the letter I wrote. I want you to tell them about every detail of my cruelty. Put it all in there. Spare no detail. And then Moses wrote, you know, say all those things about what God did through me, but make sure you say the stuff like, I, I, I killed the Egyptian guy, and I didn't really want to go... To be the liberator, and I struck that rock in anger. Um, Make sure you get all that in there. And Peter, when he tells Mark um, about writing the Gospel of Mark, he's he's like, tell them all those stupid things I said about get behind me, Satan, and I want to be the greatest in the kingdom, and how I denied Jesus three times. And uh, Paul is like, tells Luke, you know, make sure that you tell them that when we stoned Stephen, that I was there and I approved of that stoning. And make sure that three times you tell them that story about how I went and tried to murder. Well, I was murdering and went to Damascus to murder more Christians. And it's just amazing. Um, this wave of light and honesty and realism that comes from reading the Bible. And think about an Israelite child uh, reading these stories about their, the, the technicolor sins of their heroes. Um, about um, the conscience. How would that shape the conscience of a child? And I would say that any parent that takes the Bible seriously uh, is going to make you a lot less hard on your child. It's it's kind of paradoxical. But if you minimize sin, you're actually going to be harder on your child because you're going to expect them to act in a certain way. that's almost perfect. But if you take the Bible seriously and teach them stories like this one, they're going to know, oh, we all do these things. We're all like this. That there's no one righteous, no not one, no one seeks God, no one understands, we've all turned aside, we've all become worthless, there's no one that does good, not even one. The child's going to know that, and they're not going to be as as ashamed of even their worst behavior. And of course, the church in discipleship has to teach this all the time, because the human tendency is always the other direction, always towards self-righteousness and the Pharisees and self-justification and pride and arrogance and looking down on people who are not religious. Um, even the attempt to cover this up that David tries when he brings Uriah home, says sleep with her so that, so that the whole child thing will get covered up. They'll think it's Uriah's child, not my child. Get him drunk, send him back to the front lines, pull back, make sure he's dead. You know, even the, even the cover-up is exposed. Uh, they didn't have to put the cover-up in there. They could have just left it with Bathsheba, but no, they want to put the whole thing in there. Even our attempts to cover up are exposed by God and His Word, and again that that creates a culture of, of brutal honesty. I remember a few years ago, um, maybe maybe seven or eight years ago, the, the RUF pastor at Wake Forest, uh, Reformed University Fellowship pastor, Kevin Teasley, he's the one that started it, and uh, he told me how um, people will come up to him, students who who are not part of RUF, uh, who who are not Christians. And they'll say, I don't understand this community that you have formed. Because you've got all these people that are like really high-functioning. They win all these awards. They're always at the football games on the you know, end zone getting all these awards. And uh, they're, From what we can tell, they're very virtuous. And yet, when I go to your meetings, all you talk about is sin. And like how terrible you are. And it doesn't make any sense to me. And Kevin would always say, the only reason there's any virtue in those people is because they talk about their sin. Is because they open up, and they tell each other, and they repent, and they pray for each other. That's the only virtue we have. That's what makes us so different. And the church is, frankly, worthless. Worthless without confession. Maybe maybe worse than worthless. It becomes a brood of vipers, uh, as Jesus said. A whitewashed tomb. Because without self-awareness and self-reflection, we have these resources that make us feel superior to other people. And... We all know it's happened many, many times. Not in church history, but today. I mean, in church history and today. So the question you've got to be asking yourself, hopefully you're thinking about, it, is like, where do I participate in this kind of life? Of the Bible, of the church, of spirituality. Where do I confess sins? Who do I confess sins to? Who do I tell about these things? Who do I share my shame with? Uh, Jesus said, if the salt has lost its saltiness, then it is... No good for anything to be trampled underfoot. It's, the church has got to be a place of confession and honesty and vulnerability. And, um, you know, today I think our culture knows these things. The popularity of Brene Brown, you know, her TED Talk and her books. Vulnerability is cherished by many people in our society, which is a wonderful thing. And, uh, and being shameless and telling the truth as it is. It's, uh, scientists have, have measured how healthy this is. Uh, but we've got to make sure we do it. We have resources in the church that no one else has to do these things. We have texts like this. So, uh, so we've got to do these things. And again, not to create a sensation. Like I got the most sensational confession, but just to say, we need to walk in the light because when we walk in the light, then that's how we know we're loved. When we bring these things out into the open, then we know we're loved. You don't really know you're loved until you've told God everything. Um, you don't really know a person fully accepts you and loves you until you've told them everything. And until you've told them that last bit, that last detail of your shame, you don't know for sure if they're, if they're going to reject you. you know, maybe, that, maybe if I told them that one more story, that thought, that fantasy, I'm not sure if anybody would actually love me. And, uh, and this story is saying, no, you can, tell, you can tell that to God. I mean, what, what worse could ever, what, what thing could you have ever done worse than what David did? So that's the first point. Uh, the, the second point is that the whole thing is written down because of God's amazing grace and love for you. And, and not to make you feel terrible. And not to destroy you. And so it says that, uh, again, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And ultimately he sent him to David. And I didn't include this verse, I probably should have, but in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 12... That's the climax where it says the Lord put away your sin. Nathan tells David, the reason I sent uh, I was sent to you, the reason I told you that story about the lamb is so that you could know that God has put away your sin and that you're completely safe and forgiven and secure in God's arms. And he's never going to reject you. So, again, right after it displeased the Lord, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And again, think about Bathsheba and Uriah and what has been done to them. Um, and you, know, you can't forget about... And when, you're, when you're thinking about David being uh, forgiven and the sin being put away, just remember who is over here on the side. It's these two massive victims. And, and really God, the most of all. If there's any victim, it's God, primarily. And yet this is what forgiveness looks like, that God would nevertheless send Nathan to David... Um, And tell him the story as a storyteller, not an angry boss or a jilted lover, but he sends Nathan to David to tell him a story, Um, to tell him the truth in a way that he can hear it, that bypasses kind of somehow gets under the radar and bypasses those defense mechanisms that are uh, so amazing that humans have of, of filtering out the truth about ourselves or getting angry and attacking whoever's telling us the truth. The story kind of... The parable kind of gets in there at a 45 degree angle. He's like, Nathan, go tell him. Go tell him what he's done, but tell him in a way that is kind of slanted. Uh, Emily Dickinson has a great poem. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. She goes on. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. Truth must dazzle gradually. Or every man be blind. Um, and what she's saying is just this very same thing about the parable. Is that to really get to someone, you've kind of got to, again, go under the radar. Direct truth is too bright. And if, if, um, if Nathan had come to David and just said, uh, you, you slept, you raped her, and you killed her husband David would have killed Uriah, right, uh, would have killed Nathan right there as he did with Uriah. I mean, he already covered it up once, so how would he not cover it up a second time? So that's not what God says. Uh, God says, go and tell him a story. Uh, and here's the story there were two men in a certain city, uh, one rich, one poor. The poor man has this one beloved lamb that we've already heard about. And the rich man has countless. Uh, nameless, faceless sheep that he doesn't care about. And then this old friend comes to town. And uh, when the old friend comes to town, the rich man wants to kind of show off, throw his weight around a little bit, show what he can do. So instead of taking one of his own many, many lambs that he doesn't care about, and he's got thousands of them, he, uh, he kind of elbows his friend and says, you know, watch this. See what I can do. And he goes to the poor man's house who might have been like a serf that uh, worked for him. He steals the man's ewe lamb and he slaughters it and then they eat it. And it's, uh, it's amazing just that God would even, I mean, who could come up with a story like that as a way of paralleling uh, what David did? And then Nathan asks David, you know, what do you think about that, what that rich man did? And David just explodes. That man must die. And I'd like to see what happened after that. I wonder how many seconds how long Nathan kind of let that just hang out there, that pause? And then how is he looking at David when he said, you are the man? Was it like drawn out you know, slowly? you he looking at him in the eye? Was he looking down? But at some point, Nathan says, well, you are that man. You are that rich man. That's what you did. And yet, as a parable, somehow... It, it kind of flies through like a heat-seeking missile and just goes right to the heart. And it nails it. And so in verse 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's exactly what the parable was meant to do, to get him to that place. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, why does it, why does it work that way? It works that way because we have such a keen awareness of other people's sins, like 20-20 vision. And then when we turn that vision on ourselves, it becomes incredibly blurry. And so it's, I, like, I see your sin in laser focus, you know, digital image. And then when I look at my own, it's like just huge blocks of pixels where you can barely see anything on the screen. I can barely see my sin at all. And so uh, last week I was in the car driving and my wife Margie was texting our daughter uh, to make sure she was okay. And I was like, "Put, why do you always pull out your phone on, in the car? Can we try to create a culture in our family where we don't use the phone when we're together. And, uh, and then she was kind of ashamed. Put it away. We got to the restaurant. And I pulled out my phone out and started checking basketball school. And I was, she called me. I was like, this is different. This is somehow this is different. And the point is you, you tell a parable to someone because they can see the sin in the rich man. that they couldn't see in themselves. And then when you connect the pot, they finally, when you connect those dots, they see, oh, that's me. That's who I am. And it's just, again, so loving is the way that God tells David the story. that He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 13. Which is the only way that, uh, honestly, the only way he could ever receive God's love. He's not going to be able to receive God's love until he says, I have sinned. And right when he says, I have sinned, Nathan says, God has put away your sin forever. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west, it is gone. Um, it is drowned. It is cast into the depths of the sea. It's been obliterated. All that you did to Bathsheba, all that you did to Uriah, one confession, and it's all gone. Um, he tells him the truth, but he tells it in love. And I was trying to think of a time in my life when um, someone told me the truth in love in a way that I wouldn't have heard it. I would not have heard it if it had been told to me directly. And I thought of this example um, it was back in 1992, and I, I was about a two-month-old Christian, a little tiny baby, and I was um, unbelievably proud and snobbish uh, back then. And it's not that I'm not anymore, it's that I now know. I had no idea back then at all. I mean, it was just dawning on me. I had not read enough of the Bible to realize uh, that this is who we all are. So um, I visited um, my my girlfriend, Margie, who's now my wife, I visited her in her small town of Tarboro, where I'd always made the joke that uh, to get to Tarboro, at what point do you have to hitch the wagons up to the horses and like get on that dirt road? But she never really appreciated that. But I I finally visited her in her small town, and her family and friends were gathered around the living room, and they were telling these stories. And I thought, you know, when you gather, you have a discussion, and we we talk about an idea. And they're just telling stories and laughing. And I thought the jokes were kind of corny. And the stories were a little bit drawn out and silly. And they were making political statements that to me were completely unfounded, totally uninformed. And uh, I actually got so worked up by this that I went to the bathroom for like 10, 15 minutes just to cool down. I didn't have to go to the bathroom. I just went in there to kind of cool down. And then, of course, at some point, uh, my girlfriend finds out um, that I'm in the bathroom for a long time and wants to know why. And when I come out... Um, she kind of finds out uh, like that something is going on beyond just what would normally be going on, and so um, she was really, really angry. And she could have just completely blasted me right there, and and she could have told me like the truth directly. But what she said was, you know, you know how you became a Christian by reading Mere Christianity, and how much you love that book. And you know what was that chapter that you loved the most? Wasn't it called the Great Sin? And what was that chapter about? And uh, I was like, it was about pride. And she said, what was the, what was the line that you loved the most? And I said, uh, the line that I love the most is that there's no fault of which we are less conscious of in ourselves and dislike more in others than the sin of pride or arrogance or conceit. And uh, she just kind of left it there. And if she had yelled at me, I would have said, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything. I wasn't thinking of anything. I just went to the bathroom. But when she told me that just kind of asked questions kind of indirectly through referring to a book that I love uh, at that point uh, I repented in a way that was very very deep very very painful I, I've, uh, I've never had that experience again with her family and friends I'm happy to tell you And uh, I, I, I said like David I have sinned against the Lord and it might not sound like a big sin but actually snobbery like that and arrogance is, a, is pretty bad it's pretty disgusting And Jesus said, uh, I am the light of the world, and I am the truth, and the truth sets you free. And that's why when he came, he told parables. He told parables to set people free, like David, from their sin. And he said things like, uh, there was a man lying in a ditch on the side of the road, and all these religious people walked by him, and guess what? They didn't do anything. But then this hated Samaritan came by, and he helped the man." And he said there was this uh, vineyard and uh, these workers were in the vineyard and they decided to steal the vineyard from the owner and kick the owner out and kill all the messengers that the owner sent. And finally the owner sent his son and they killed the son. What do you think about that? And he said uh, there was this older brother and his younger brother had gone into a far country and taken all the, all the money from the family and squandered it all. And uh, the younger brother came back home. The father loved him, was so excited, said Huge party, uh, created a huge party for his, the the younger brother, and guess what the older brother did? He wouldn't even go in. He wouldn't even go into the party. He was so angry. What do you think about that? And again and again and again, he told these parables. And uh, there was a there's this spoof uh, on these old Jesus movies by a church called Vintage Twenty One in Raleigh. And in one of them, you've got to see these things. Uh, they kind of voice over the old the old movies, the old black and white movies of Jesus and the disciples from like the 50s. So in one of them, he comes to his disciples and he says, uh, now it's time for me to tell you all the bad things that you've done since we last met. And he goes through each one and tells them all the sins that they've committed. And that's a lot of times the way we think that Jesus acts. Now is the time for me to tell you all the terrible things you've done since we last met. And that's not what he does at all. Um, He gives us his supper, which is really the greatest parable of all. And uh, it is the truth in love, if you will. And if you go back through the story of Bathsheba and think about David and Uriah and Bathsheba, as we take the meal, just think about how when David is walking on the roof, um, think about Jesus walking up Golgotha, up to carrying his cross up that hill. And... Uh, as you think about David looking at Bathsheba with lust, think about Jesus looking at uh, Peter with so much love when Peter denied him. He looked right at him. This look of love. And when you think about David taking her, think about how Jesus was taken by the guards. And when you think about David murdering Uriah, think about how he was murdered. And how he came and he took all of our iniquities and he bore all of our diseases. Not just for the victims, but also for the ones who are the victim but the, at the cross, both the, the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us, they're all dealt with there on the cross. And so this is a parable right here um, of our sin and of God's grace. Uh, this is the, the ultimate example.